I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Alain de Botton. Download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org. Oh, hello. Very nice to speak to you. Is this Alain? Yes, it is. Oh, wonderful to have you at the other end. Oh, you know, um, I know sometimes people, uh, some journalists have been somewhat snide about your perfectly proper and precise speech, but it's something I deeply admire and aspire to myself. So I want to hear you say your name so that I can say it precisely. Well, whatever, you whatever you, well I say it Alain de mm-hmm. Botton. Okay. That's right. how I say it. All right. Great. But, uh, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Hello there. My name is Richard. I'm the engineer for the session. Lovely to meet you. I'm Krista Tippett in Minnesota. And Chris, Hi there. Um, I just wondered, yes. um, there were a couple of questions. Do you want this locally recorded as well? And I can FTP over to your web, or do you just want to take the recording that you're doing? Uh, Chris, what do you think? Okay, well, I'll, I'll record it my end, and then I'm sure we can sort out a way of sending it over to you later if you need it. Okay, then. Um, I'll just sort out levels and stuff at this end, then, okay? Okay. There you go, sorry about that. Great. Okay. Do do you have any questions of me before we start? Hello. Yes, hello. Do do you have any Hi. questions of me before we start? Um, well, tell me a little bit about what we're going to do. Okay, so my program is right up your alley. It's it's a it's a public radio program about what we say meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Um, it's called On Being, and um, it's it's very much uh, a, a kindred project in some ways to what you are talking and thinking and writing about. Um, I interview deeply religious people working in many fields. I interview a lot of scientists. And so I'm really just, we're really going to delve into your thinking. Um, particularly, right. I have looked, I mean, I've read you over the years, and I, I did look back at a number of your other books, but we're going to focus on um, religion for atheists, the, uh, you know, the, idea, the ideas that are um, expressed in there. And, um, yeah, it's a conversation, and, and uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Brilliant. Okay. Um, Chris? Can we go? All right. Uh, down. Okay, yes. Um, let me have a look. What about like this? I think, I think the echo might be coming from somewhere else. Yes. Were you Can, hearing... What, what, what about this? Is that, is that okay? I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not particularly loud. Chris, were you? I'm. I'm not hearing an echo. Were you hearing an echo? Oh. Okay. Yes. Yes. Were you hearing an echo? Because I. W- I was not hearing an echo. But I don't. It sounds fine to me at this point. Are you? Are we okay? Okay. Good. All right. Um. So you know, as I said, I interview people in many different spheres. Um. And and from many different backgrounds, I I always like to talk about the religious background of people's childhood as we begin, because everybody has a story, you know, whatever, whatever wherever they are as an adult, and it's it's interesting to you know read you. You were raised as you you often say in a devoutly atheist family. Is it right that your father was from an immigrant Jewish community in Egypt? Is that that's right? Yeah. Exactly, he was, and. Um, but my, my parents, um, we, you know, we grew up in a very secular atmosphere mm-hmm. um, of a kind that perhaps many, um, you know, very few people uh, in history ha- have enjoyed 
um, or had childhoods yeah. as secular as mine. It's a, it's a very modern phenomenon. I never went to a religious school. I didn't come across any um, you know religious education. Um, there was no religion at home. It, you know, religion was happening very far away. It was just not mm. within my sphere of reference. I, I wonder. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine Jewish identity at that point in history and. And the Jewish community in Egypt, um, I, I think that that religious, that ethnic identity, which is also religious, must have been, became very important, but also deeply painful. I mean, was your parents' re- um, rejection of religion rooted in that difficulty and that, that pain? Yes, I think it was. I think my parents were rejecting what they saw as um, the traumas of religion right. uh, that had led the Jewish people to enormous suffering yeah. in the 20th century. Um, and uh, I think they, they were people who looked to a kind of secular modernity based around science and progress. They were, they were in a sense, very kind of, uh, you know, mid-20th mid century people who, right. who wanted an end to the bloodshed, the pain, the suffering that they saw religion as having caused and, um, and wanted to move away from it all. Right. And then you've written that in your mid-twenties, you had what you called a crisis of faithlessness. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, as I say, I, I grew up with this idea that um, religion was, was not only wrong, but also um, stupid, silly, ridiculous, something for other people. And then um, as I left home, started making my way in the world, um, I started discovering, and this was a slightly worrying discovery, um, that there were lots of things tangentially associated with religion that were quite nice. I rather like religious architecture, something very beautiful about religious music. Many great works of, um, of art were, were religious in tone, and yet that didn't seem to stop me um, getting a lot from them. Yeah. Um, so this was all rather uh, off message and a little bit worrying because I wasn't supposed to be interested in all this. This was a bad thing to be. So, uh, but, so that's, that's where my, as I say, crisis of faithlessness came about. Um, I began to realize that um, religion, for all its flaws and for all its faults and all its excesses, uh, had some high points that were incredibly interesting, fascinating, beautiful, uh, inspiring. And um, it took me a while to square this with um, you know, my, my atheism, the fact that I'm not a, not a believer. So the, the very first line of religion for atheists, I think, is a, a really important um framing statement and an unusual statement in the West, even though it's very simple, that the most boring and unproductive question one can ask of any religion is whether or not it is true. That's right, you see, because it seems to me that most debates on religion currently centre around the existence or non-existence of God. And I've sat in on many of these debates, and they are frankly boring. Not boring not because they're not touching on a very important issue. It mm-hmm. is important. They're boring because no one ever makes any headway. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the atheists look at the religious and think that they're stupid, and the religious look at the atheists and think they're damned, and both sides are fiercely entrenched. The argument about whether God does or doesn't exist is, I, I think, ultimately one where most individuals are not rationally aware of their reasons for believing in what they believe. Hmm. Um, you know, it's on, something on both sides of the issue? On both sides. Mm-hmm. On both sides. I think we, we grow into 
a position on religion. Um, it's a little bit like, like our views of um, attraction. You know, we discover that we're attracted to certain people, right. certain gender, certain types. We don't you know, sit down and think... It's well, beyond I, rationality. Many, yeah, exactly. It's slightly yes. beyond rationality. Mm -hmm. and, um, and yet both sides insist that it is something they can convince through argument another person about. And, and I think this is, is simply not true. And I mean, another important observation that you made, as you then began to, uh, it seems to me, uh, ponder and, and take seriously what you found, what you appreciated that religion had brought into the world. Um, uh, and it was art and architecture, but also concerns, practical skills for life, vocabulary. Um, you also became aware or, or you know, or are aware that that Christianity in particular, which is, is the this dominant force in, in Western Europe and in the United States, had no qualms at its origins about co-opting um, the best of pagan society when, when it was creating its cultures. That's right. There's a, there's a paradox that often um, people who, who don't particularly believe um, will sometimes have um, be drawn to ideas or emotions or or activities, and then they might say, "Oh, that seems a bit too religious," um, and they might draw back from it. <laughs> yeah. um, particularly, for example, the the teaching of ethics um, or a moral code, right. or even certain kinds of ritual. These things can seem to people who don't believe a little bit too religious. And then, what's fascinating is if you look at the history of religions. Religions, of course, hoover up; they suck in all kinds of concepts yeah. and ideas from the uh, culture around originally. Them. That's right, from mm -hmm. the culture around them. And, and religions have always done this, and so. I suppose what I'm arguing for is a kind of reverse colonization um, <laughs> in the same way that Christianity colonized the pagan world, um, absorbing its best elements. So I, I'm arguing that um, non-believers today can do a little bit of this with religion, just as religion oh. did it with them. <laughs> so, right. Um, you know, because a lot of what we find in Christianity comes, of course, from Greek philosophy. Most of the concepts are from Greek philosophy. Even the concept of monasticism um, mm. was uh, uh, taken from the Epicurean philosophical communities that existed in the Mediterranean world. So an awful lot that seems to us intrinsically religious is not. It's, it's part of the treasury of mankind. Mm. And I think that's the drift in my book. I'm trying to say, um, you know, these religions at their highest points, at their most complex and subtle uh, moments, are far too interesting to be abandoned merely to those who believe in them. Uh, they're for everybody, not least non-believers, partly because a lot of what's in these religions was made up by non-believers. It was created by non-believers. Mm. Okay, so, so let's, talk, let's talk specifically about some of these aspects of religious tradition, religious communities that you, that you feel um, are repositories of wisdom for, as you say, all of humanity, um, including nonbelievers. And, <clears throat> you know, you used the word moral just a second ago. And I think that in particular is a word that um, feels very fraught and hijacked by our religion versus non-religion debates or conservative religion versus progressive religion. But you are really appreciative um, and the word, you, the phrase you use is of moral atmosphere, intentional moral atmospheres. Um, and I, I, again, I think something that you that you point out um, that we we don't think about very often is that um, secular. You can get rid of re religious symbols in our public spaces and in secular culture, which we have to a, a very large degree. 
but there's still a moral atmosphere created in community. And you, you've said atheists overlook secular society's powerful and continuous calls to prayer. Yes, I mean, I suppose what I'm arguing uh, for is um, something quite simple, which is the importance of trying to be good and trying to be kind. Now, let me stress right away that I don't think religions have a monopoly on this at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's entirely possible to be good and kind and believe in nothing. Um, I know this is a point that is extremely fraught in the United States, where atheists are regularly accused of being immoral. And I think uh, that is absolutely wrong. Yeah, no I don't even know if the discussion gets that far, usually. I right. mean, it, may be, okay. it may be an um, assumption. I don't think it's a very examined yes, assumption. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. what religions do, which is rather interesting, is they recognize that if we are to be good, and to be kind and to treat others with respect, um, we need reminders um, that we have to do this. Um, In other words, the reason why we're often a bit short and nasty and bad-tempered with people is not because we have no intellectual understanding of the importance of goodness, but because we have no regular reminders of its importance which can have an effect in the kind of hurly-burly of daily life. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why religions are all about repetition. They... They're aware that our minds are like sieves. If you tell someone something once, it will just fly out of their mind immediately. What you need to do is repeat lessons, which is why all the faiths have calendars. And those calendars are about taking people again and again through certain lessons. Because what was clear at nine o'clock in the morning will be growing dim by midday and totally forgotten by the evening. So you need to keep going back over things. And so their emphasis, um, a a lot of them in moral teachings, is that... um, we need to have constant public reminders of this, all this stuff about being good and kind that all of us probably sign up to in theory but forget about in practice. Um, and this is a, a real contrast to the secular world, which basically says public space must be neutral. There must be no messages reaching people uh, because that might be an infringement of freedom, um, to which I say, OK, that's all very well. But the point is, firstly, public space is not neutral because it's <laughs> There dominated. are all kinds of messages reaching it's dominated us all by the messages, time. Yes. Right. Most of which are commercial messages. Uh-huh. So, you know, um, uh, you know, we've got so many commercial messages assaulting us. Why not a few uh, moral messages uh, 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 coming our way? So we don't live in the kind of completely neutral public space that's often fantasized about by secular defenders of a kind of neutral uh, liberalism. Um, we, we are actually, as I say, assaulted by commercial messages. So religions want to assault us with other messages, mm-hmm. messages to be kind and to be good and to forgive and all these things. Um, and look, I think this is rather welcome. It's like the way in which families, um, when they're left to their own devices on their own, quickly descend into chaos and backbiting and um, sharp and short comments. Um, but when there's a visitor, they behave rather nicely. Mm. When friends are, uh, have dropped by, everyone behaves a bit better. Now, one view is to say, well, that's a bit fake. You know, people are just behaving in a fake way. But there's another way of looking at it, which is to say, maybe what they're doing is making an effort when somebody else is around. And right. maybe that's what we need to do, make a little bit more of an effort. We accept the role of effort when it comes to physical health. Everybody yes. accepts, you know, it's fine to go to the gym. But we, make a li- we, we don't make such allowance when it comes to our moral characters. The idea of making an effort to be a better person. It sounds like a really odd project. But religions take that project on board. They're interested in training us to be good. And they know that having a feeling of being observed, having a public space that is coloured by a moral atmosphere, that all of this can help. 
And I don't know, this, this intrigues and attracts me. Well, and what's, what's intriguing to me, too, is how 21st century science, you know, neuroscience, is actually validating this intuition that religious traditions have had for thousands of years. As you say, that we have to practice, we have to train our minds just in the way we have to train our bodies. Um, and, um, and, and, and I think then, the reason yeah. why... Mm-hmm. Sorry, I think the reason why we need to do that and, and, and sort of science is catching up with this is because we are not just rational creatures. If we were just rational creatures and our brains remembered everything that was reasonable, then we'd be fine. But the point is we're emotional creatures fundamentally. And so, uh, so we kind of respond to, to impulses and, and, and um, uh, you know, desires and, and, and all these things. And so religions are aware of this. And that's why they try and hit us, get to us, not just through reasoned arguments, but also through music, through architecture, through sound, through food. They, 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 know, they know that if you're, if you're trying to get through to somebody, if you just um, propose certain kind of logical ideas, you're not going to get very far. You need to touch the whole human being. And the, the idea that we are rational creatures or could become rational creatures living in a rationally run world was really a fundamental assumption that emerged in the, well, certainly in the course of the 20th century. Uh, (laughs) A lot of evidence to the contrary. But, you know, those of us, I think, who grew up in the latter part of the 20th century, there was this this aspiration. And, And, I mean, that is kind of a bedrock of secular society as we inherited it. Yes, and I think uh, along with that, you know, what's wrong with that? I think it's simply too mature. It's too reasonable. We're, we're, you know, we're all a little bit crazier than that. And, and I think it's kind of cruel to deny this aspect. You find this a lot uh, in, in education. You know, the, the modern secular education system is based on the idea that life is, is essentially a kind of fairly easy process to get through. And so you need to teach people certain skills for the modern economy, like accountancy and macrobiology and all this sort of stuff. But what you don't need to teach them is how to live, because mm-hmm. how to live is fairly obvious. All you need to do is, you know, separate yourself from your parents and bring up some children, maybe, and find a job you like. and All um, those really easy mortality. things. <laughs> all those really easy things. And then, yeah. you know, and then confront your own death. And it's, it's just right. really simple. So you right. don't need guidance. <laughs> right. And so I think, you know, the interesting thing about um, the secular world is it, it tells us, look, if you need help, you're probably stupid. Um, uh, that's why you should read self-help books. You know, stupid people read self-help books. But clever people, they know how to live already. And that's why if you show up at any institution of higher education in the United States or anywhere in the modern world and say, look, I've come to study how to live. I want to learn how to live and die. I want to know how, what's good and bad. They show you the exit. You know, they, 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 they would take you for a mad person. Mm-hmm. Um, you're supposed to know this stuff. And my question is, how? I don't know this stuff. Right. Um, how are we supposed to know how to live? And the fascinating starting point of religions, all religions, is they start from the idea that we don't know how to live. And so that's why they need to teach us wisdom. They need to instruct us in how to you know, have relationships, bring up children, uh, deal with the workplace, uh, deal with money. This is all part of their core curriculum. Right. And I don't necessarily agree with the details of that core curriculum in many, many cases, but I'm fascinated by their assumption that we need such a kind of uh, educational effort in the direction of wisdom. Right. I mean, you use words, you, you use words like religion's clear-eyed and unsentimental assessment of the human condition. And I have to say, uh, for as somebody who studied theology, um, I think this is an undervalued aspect of theology in Western culture in general, even among religious people, that that there's so there is this long tradition of 
deep thinking and wrestling with the complexity of the human condition, um, as much right. as is in there about the nature of God. That's right. I mean, religions are sometimes mistaken for being very optimistic, almost mm-hmm. naive, childlike in their belief in, in our next world and everything being fine and God's providence and, and so on. But actually, you're absolutely right. If, if you look at religious tradition and history, there's many, many thinkers who are deeply clear-eyed, if not very pessimistic about yes. human nature in a way that strikes secular ears as a bit surprising, but I think actually a real relief um, because sometimes the modern world is really optimistic. The view is, you know, everything can be perfected by science and technology and um, we're soon going to be, you know, perfect creatures. Yeah, um, I have to read. Here's and, this, and, this for the, these lines from your from Religion for Atheists. You, you talked about secular society and it said, that with no evident awareness of the contradictions, they may in the same breath gruffly dismiss a belief in angels while sincerely trusting in the combined powers of the IMF, the medical research establishment, Silicon Valley, and democratic politics could together cure the ills of mankind. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Whereas religions know, I mean, take the Catholic idea, and I speak as a convinced atheist, the Catholic idea of original sin. Fascinating right, idea, right. beautiful idea, starts from the notion that the human animal is crooked. We are slightly wrong and imperfectible. The only perfectible creature out there is divine. Um, That is the source of perfection. The human animal is a mixture of the divine and the not divine. And so, in other words, perfectibility is not in our nature and we shouldn't aim for it. Now, this could seem a bit dark and pessimistic, but imagine trying to have a relationship with someone who thinks that perfectibility is within their grasp. Someone young, (laughs) good-looking, very optimistic, (laughs) who thinks, you know, I'm going to get together with another similarly perfect being and we're going to have a fantastic, terrific time. I mean, watch out for the divorce lawyers and the alarm bells. (laughs) That's not going to work. Whereas if two people come together and go, look, I'm a little nuts and, you know, you're probably a little nuts too because, you know, you're human. But we're going to try and make a go of it and, uh, you know, against the deep, backdrop of human fallibility. I'd give that relationship much more uh, of, a, uh, of a vote because it's going to be based on, on reality. Right. Are, are you familiar with the uh, 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who was known as a Christian realist? I mean, yes, he, yeah, he, you know, he, for example, said original sin is you, you only have to know that original sin is true. Just take a look at today's newspaper, <laughs> that, right. that there's something to it. Just take a look at That's today's right. newspaper. That's right. And of course, I mean, this could sound like a council of despair and, you know, all, all very dark. But first of all, a lot of the reason why we get depressed, I mean, both clinically and more casually, um, is because um, the mood is so upbeat. You know, if you have a society where you're told constantly, you could be anything, you could do anything, get out there, you know, you could make a million bucks by the end of the week, um, we're all going to have a nervous breakdown. Whereas if you tell people that life is imperfect, you're not going to have what we have in in the US and and elsewhere, which is a crisis of low self-esteem. In other words, we are not measuring up to an ideal of perfection. Um, which we implicitly believe in. Religions tell us, no, this, this ideal is, is, is wrong, even impious, her- heretical. Um, there are no perfect humans. The only perfect beings are, are divine. Now, I don't believe in the divine uh, people, but I, I certainly believe that human beings are not perfect. And, and religion sounds a very interesting, cautionary, wise note in, uh, in telling us this. Well, and even to bring this to another level, like, I couldn't help thinking as I was reading you about the economic crisis we're in, both in Europe and the United States, where we had 
we had lived with this vision of eternal progress, this upward arc that would never end. And, and then we, you know, we continued to manufacture that with all of the tools at our disposal. But what economists now, this, this supposedly rational discipline, right? We turned it into a rational discipline. I mean, what, they ha- what they hadn't factored in and are now factoring in is, is, is the fickleness and flaws and weakness of, of human nature, that's right. That's right. And um, and so a little kind of stoic realism is um, can be very, very helpful. Also, you know, talking about economic crisis, the other thing that religions have done fascinatingly throughout their history is to make a distinction between earthly power and virtue. In other words, you mm. can be very rich and very powerful, right? But your heart, your heart may not be good. That those are two, um, and this is, two still two different strivings and. Absolutely. You know, we have, we have, absolutely. We have an echo of it when we ask of people, you know, if somebody says, you know, so-and-so is really you know, rich and successful. Um, that second question we might ask is, but are they nice? Now, that's a Christian question, but yeah. in its origins in the West, I would argue. Um, in other words, that there is a distinction uh, between power and goodness. Um, and the fact that we have such a distinction still in our, in our culture is, is down to, to religion, which makes this very useful distinction between, let's say, earthly and sort of heavenly status. Now, you don't have to believe in heaven to know that that's a very good distinction to have in your culture. It introduces a tremendous amount of breathing space. Um, it, it gives people a capacity to be so-called successful on different registers. Mm. Uh, it allows, you know, the penniless person to, to be able um, to achieve something um, next to the CEO. Um, and, and that, as I say, rely, you know, it, it provides huge kind of mental breathing space, right. um, well, there are different, especially also, at times like these. Yes, and there are different scales for, for defining a life of dignity. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, I mean, it's interesting, if a couple of other things that you, features of, very religious features of, um, of traditions that you also say that you feel secular, atheists and secular society could learn from, something like the Day of Atonement in, in Judaism, um, or the saints, the, the, the tradition of saints in Roman Catholicism. Yes, I mean, t- taking those two, um, the Day of Atonement, um, a fascinating moment in the calendar in Judaism where people essentially say sorry to each other. And they say sorry against the backdrop of um, a God who doesn't make mistakes, um, but humans who do. And, and you're invited to basically admit that you are not a divine creature. You, yeah. you constantly make mistakes. So you should admit it. And that's fine because it's in the nature of being human that you make mistakes. Um, religions also seem to be aware that a lot of what we want to do, we can't do on our own. If you say to people, you know, it's good to forgive and it's good to uh, atone for stuff, that's all very well. But how are we going to get around to doing it? You know, what are we going to do? Just sort of pitch up one day and, and, and start apologizing? No, that's not going to work. So what religions do is create rituals. Now, what is a ritual? A ritual is a communal moment where you are given license, encouragement, structure to do something which would be mightily hard if you were left to do it on your own. Um, like, as I say, saying sorry. Um, it's much easier to say sorry if everybody's doing it on a particular day because then there's a sort of cycle of mutual apology and forgiveness which makes the whole thing much more normal. And so, you know, we're very suspicious of ritual in the non-believing world. You know, we think that there shouldn't really be rituals, that that private life should should have its own rhythms and that no one should come in from the outside and say, you know, well, today we're going to say sorry and, you know, next week we're going to worship spring and the day after, you know, we're going to think about the qualities of humility in a saint or something. The idea is you should do all this on your own, in private. Um, 
And I'm coming round to the view that, you know, that's nice in theory. The problem is we'll never get round to it. If you leave people right. to do everything by themselves, you know, we won't get round to it. I mean, take, take the appreciation of nature, which is such a fundamental thing in, in religions. Um, you know, springtime now is, uh, you know, coming across uh, uh, the northern hemisphere. And, um, you know, it's nice to appreciate the spring. The problem is we don't really tend to do it. And the reason we don't tend to do it is there's no day in the calendar when we might do it. There's no structure. Yeah. Religions give structure, whereas... Uh, sorry, a secular world um, doesn't have structure as religions do. Um, so the festival of Birkat Hilahot in Judaism is precisely a moment when communities, Jewish communities, will go out and look at the blossom and recite prayers. Right, right. And, right. You, know, you, you could do this with Wordsworth, but the problem is uh, you probably won't do it Wordsworth, with Wordsworth because you know, you've got a meeting with a tax accountant. Yeah, yeah. So interestingly, you, you have um, created a... An organization, a community, I think you would say, this, this, the School of Life. Um, That's right. Right, where you are actually um, putting some of this into effect. And um, a, I wonder, so another, another aspect of religious tradition, just very central, the element of religious experience across time has been community. And it seems to me that you are also... You know, you've created a kind of community. Is that is that fair? I don't know how much about. I don't know that much about how it works. I mean, I've looked at the website, but so I'd like to yes. hear about what happens yes. there. Who comes and and how does it function? Well, um, this thing called the School of Life does pick up on, on a number of ideas that uh, that that I had. Um, first of all, it picks up on the idea that we need guidance. Um, that that learning how to live is is not something we just do spontaneously. Where do we turn to? Um, but they're actually surprisingly not that many places. Um, so the idea came to me to, to start an institution. It's very little, but it's having a sort of big, Im- strangely big impact, even though it's quite tiny. It's in London. Um, it's in London, mm-hmm. centre of London, and anyone who comes by London can can just drop in at any time. And uh, in the every evening, we've got classes in the great challenges of life: uh, mortality, children. Uh, divorce, marriage, um, money, poverty, success, um, all the things that that are likely to trouble people, um, we discuss in communal settings. Um, It's both academically rigorous but very human, and um, people meet each other. We introduce people to each other, and that's often all you need. Then people people will get chatting. But if you don't do that very fundamental basic act of introducing people, they'll just stay with their arms crossed and everybody will look very severe. I mean, this is a particularly British problem, but I think it exists in, yeah, in, no. in many parts of the States too. You know, people, we don't yes, talk to strangers absolutely. that much. You know. um, it's also a city problem, I think. That's right, exactly. Uh-huh. And also, and it's a media problem. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a media problem because we, we read the papers and we know that everybody else is supposed to be a you know, murderer and a swindler and a pedophile. So we don't, we don't <laughs> want to talk right. to other people. Right. Um, but of course, most of us are actually quite nice beneath, you know, millimeter beneath our rather stoic facades. Yeah. Um, so, so that's what the school does. We, we, we introduce people and, and, um, and we talk about these, these great problems. And, um, and, and there are many, you know, while I was writing my book, I was also helping to get this. Uh, school off off the ground, and there have been many crossovers. And one of the things that that this is about is organising oneself, because the sort of modern secular view is if you've got something to say, write a book, um, and a book will achieve everything. Um, whereas, of course, if you can contrast that with religions, religions are we say organised. They are organised religions. In other words, they're, they're groups of people who get together and go, look, we're not going to be able to do it all on our own. We're, we're, we're going to get we're going to get into a team, and um, and that way, you know, what we have to say will will get a little bit more traction, and. On the whole, secular people are a bit suspicious and they all want to speak from their own mountaintop in their own distinct voice and they don't want to join any other group because it might be tainted or sterile or boring or something like this. But but I think it can really help. I think um, 
Right. I mean, you I can the, think of religions, um, again, very wisely, as we're learning in new ways from science. I mean, they, there's, it's multi-layered. They, they actually hit at all these different levels of what makes us human, right? It's it's emotional and it's intellectual. It's individual and it's communal. It's There's art. There is text. There's music. Yeah. There's all of that. That's right. It's multimedia in a way that you know, the secular world is still grappling with. I mean, think of the ways in which religions will appeal to things like architecture. They'll, they'll, they'll think of travel. You know, religions send us traveling. How weird. You know, they send us on pilgrimages. That's really odd. In right. a, in you a said sense. you think it's a loss and, for secular, for an atheist. Absolutely. The atheists don't go on pilgrimages. Their pilgrimages are good things. Of yes. Uh-huh. I mean, we need, we need to learn to, you know, reconnect what you could call. Um, the deepest kind of meaning-centered sides of our personalities with such things as architecture, travel, food, community. These things are all kind of one, but we, we sort of chop them up and we say, you know, there's the kind of health and beauty and lifestyle section, you know, way over there. Right. And then there's the kind of ethics and ideas and politics section. Right, you've got your here. book club and, here and you have right. your place for you. Yeah, that's right. interesting. Whereas, if, you know, if you look at religions, they're a kind of fascinating mixture. I mean, yeah. the religious retreat, you know, an average religious retreat run by, you know, Buddhists or Christians, it's a kind of, it's like a spa hotel crossed with a philosophy seminar, crossed with a, I don't know, spiritual experience. And yeah. we, don't, we don't have anything like that that's, that's as unified. So I think... Well, for any budding entrepreneurs, there are there are fascinating that there's so many needs that the modern economy, say, um, doesn't really cater to, and yet that religions absolutely knew how to cater to. And um, so, you know, I, I read a journalist's account of coming to the School of Life, and it was really interesting. They described it as a place of play and whimsy and big talk, that it's warm and stylish and serious. <clears throat> I mean, I have to say, I watched uh, a bit online, you of, and I watched a sermon that you gave, and that is a, a word you use, um, that some of these talks are called sermons. And um, in the, the, the video I watched, the... the uh, the, it was a, there were a lot of people there that looked like people of all ages and a lot of young people and um, they were singing Jerusalem this this yeah. great classic <laughs> hymn which is at once deeply Christian and deeply British <laughs> yes that's right what on earth is going on <laughs> exactly um, but of course you know there's when you talk to people who don't believe one of the things they often say is, um, such a pity because the music's fantastic and the singing is, you know, is great. And, you know, I love to have the cup of tea at the end, you know, and chat to neighbours and, and all the rest of it. That's what people love, often more than the actual liturgy. Um, to which my response is, OK, well, look, if you like all this stuff, let's have some of this stuff in our lives. Um, and so we've had terrific success by hosting what we're calling secular sermons. Um, now, why, why are we calling them sermons? It's to try and suggest that listening to them is not simply going to be um, you know, an intellectual exercise, you know, fascinating little bit of knowledge, a way to show off to friends about new stuff you've learned. It's actually going to be something that will hope to steer how you live. And so it's, it's didactic, it's, um, uh, you know, it's explicitly kind of moralistic, not in a kind of starched Victorian way, but in, a, in the best possible sense, um, by trying to show you how you might live. It's, it exhorts you to, to a kind of better, fuller life. And, um, you know, why not? Why, why should these really quite nice manoeuvres only be the preserve of religion? You know, as I say, they, they really are for all of us. In your writing, you you also often pull out pieces of liturgy. I mean, words that are explicitly religious, as you are, um, 
you know, talking about what is admirable and and also what brings people together. I'm just, you know, uh, and the Book of Common Prayer in the in Britain is also a beautiful example of taking religious ideas and turning them into beautiful language. So, you know, you wrote, Strangers gaze up at the vaulted, star-studded ceiling, rehearse in union the words, Lord, come live in your people and strengthen them by your grace. So, I mean, even words like that, do you feel that those can be, that those have a meaning for secular people? Yes, And that you feel that you retain your intellectual integrity by by offering them? Sure, sure, because, you know... um, I proceed as a kind of anthropologist or a psychologist, and my immediate thought is, okay, what's going on here? Why is this quite nice? Why is this kind of sonorous, ancient language rather nice? Um, I think a lot of what's attractive in religion is that it puts us in perspective, in a wider perspective, both in time um, and in and in place. Um, and it because most of our lives are lived right up against the present moment. We get so stressed, we get so um, you know, confused, we get so overwhelmed by the kind of people around us, what's in our diaries, what's going on right now. And then once a week or more or less, you, you can go to a religious institution, be it a, you know, a mosque, a synagogue, a church, and you can step outside of the ordinary and you can be brought into contact with very, very old things or very vast things, um, things that are much greater, deeper, more mysterious than, than ordinary life. And suddenly that brings a kind of calm to our kind of inner lives um, because well, it's nice to be made to feel small. You know, it's not mm. nice when you go to a smart hotel and, you know, the guy at the door you know, treats you badly and makes you feel small in that way. I'm not talking that kind of thing. I'm talking about feeling small in, you know, against the backdrop of you, a vast universe. You're part against, of something larger than yourself. Exactly. And this is a very basic manoeuvre of all religions, um, to to lose the individual ego in a wider sea, if you like. And and that can be tremendously uh, helpful. Um, That's why, you know, the average cathedral works really well, uh, even if you don't believe in any of the liturgy, because... What's happening in that space is that, you know, your eyes rise up to the ceiling and you think, oh, I'm a tiny thing in this vast, rather mm-hmm. beautiful, rather fascinating, mysterious universe. And um, suddenly, you know, the argument you were having with X or Y seems you know, no longer so significant. So um, you, as you said, have, have an unusually um, pure trajectory as somebody who's raised with with no religion so um and you've never been a traditionally religious person even for a little while so you've never had the precise experience that a religious person has in that kind of uh, community and worship but I, I i do suspect that some would argue that that e- even with all these component parts that we've identified in others that make religion work and powerful that still um, believers would feel that there is this transcendent, cohesive force that is larger than the sum of all of those, of all of those qualities. Um, how do you Absolutely. how do you respond you know, to that, or how, you know how do you think about that? Well, you know, some people have said, um, look, it's all very well. You know, you're looking at all these different sides of religion. You're 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 picking a bit from here and a bit from there. But the point is, if you're a religious person, you can't simply do this because it's all. Um, secondary to something much larger, which is a belief in a particular God mm-hmm. and in a particular you know, vision of divinity, um, to which I can only say, look, I am an atheist. In other words, I, I've not had this feeling. I don't know what this feeling is. I'm, you know, it's just not working for me. I can't, I can't 
can't see it, can't feel it. Um, all I can report is that many of these bits of religion do impact me greatly. I don't know what it would be like to be part of a community and actually believe or um, to look at religious art and actually believe in it, etc. All I can report is that as a non-believer, these things are pretty powerful as well, which, which has upset certain religious people who will say things like, how can you say that, you know, you really like the frescoes of Giotto, but you're leaving the resurrection aside, mm-hmm. or that you love, you know, St. Augustine's vision of the city of uh, heaven, um, city of God, but that, you know, you're going to you leave aside God. You know, the Trinity. <laughs> yeah, right. You're going to leave aside the Trinity or something. You know, and, you know, to which I would say... Um, I think it is possible. It, I, I can understand that it would seem insulting to a believer. I don't mean to be insulting in any way. Uh, but I, I, look, I, I, I mean, if I was different, I would be a believer, is all I can say. I, I, I can only speak from a non-believing position. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you think about this uh, coming at a, another concern. Um, so I remember a conversation I had years ago with a an amazing, one of, one of the greatest 20th century religious historians, Yaroslav Pelikan at Yale. And in his 80s, he, did his, he completed his last project, which is, was a survey of creeds, Christian creeds, across time, across the world. And, and he believed very strongly, <laughs> I'll just say, you know, the, way he, the blunt way he said it was that the only alternative to, to tradition is bad tradition. And, and he pointed out that... Um, that in that that when people reject the creeds, um, it, but but want to believe you know but but want to believe something and do believe something um, that they they still end up then ultimately creating new creeds and that that that's always something that's going to happen um, you know and doctrine you don't you don't talk about creeds but you talk about doctrines and. Um, Doctrines are also ways in which these truths, these practices, um, these rituals even have been carried forward in time. So, I mean, do you think about this? If you had the school of life long enough, would you eventually end up with something like doctrines and creeds? Look, I think doctrines are evolving all the time. We almost don't see it, mm-hmm. but these things are changing and being enriched, and and um, yeah, they're, they're subject to, to evolution. And I I do believe that um, the Earth is still young. Uh, humanity is still very, very young. We, we sort of think sometimes, oh, we've been around for ages, we've tried everything, we're at the end of time. No, we're still very much at the beginning. We're still working out how to live. You know, we haven't taken our first steps almost. Um, and I think we're at a particular point in history where we can see that a lot more is going to come in the future. I fervently believe that in the next 100, 200 years, we will start to evolve um, ways of living a life where we don't believe, a non-believing life that is much more sophisticated than the non-believing life we currently have on offer at the moment. Uh, um, at the moment, we're offering people either the choice of, look, either you sign up to one of these religions uh, with all their doctrines and all their um, sometimes rather arduous demands on us, um, or you're outside, you know, and outside is, is really outside. Um, and, you know, take something like dying and marrying, you know, in the secular world, we're having great difficulty knowing how to be married and how to die outside of religions. You know, when mm. people get married or die, they overwhelmingly flock back to religion because these right. religions know how to do it. And it's still now, often a point on the trajectory, but a, but but just a very tiny point. Yeah, very brief one, but it, but mm-hmm. it's significant. And you know, my view is um, this is just 
that we haven't sorted this problem out yet. Um, it doesn't have to be the case. You know, it's very possible that um, non-believers will learn how to do dying slightly better. Um, you know, we, we've done amazingly at the medical on the medical front, but on the uh, the more human front, um, mm-hmm. we're, we're beginners. We don't really know how to do this. And similarly with relationships, you know, we we praise romantic love and uh, relationships to the skies, but do we really know how to make these things work? Mm, not really. Mm-hmm. So. A lot lies before us, and oddly, I think it's the study of the creativity of religions in addressing human needs that should be inspiring us, not just to look backwards, but also to look forwards for how much still needs to be done. So I, I often make a statement, which I think is somewhat controversial, that I, I, don't, I think you know, atheists have spiritual lives too. You know, yes. Then it ends up de- depending on how you're defining spiritual. But when we the the assumption that they wouldn't, or or, or an assertion by atheists that they don't, is is part of what excludes uh, non-religious people from, as you say, some of these really important things we grapple with in religion. Um, do you would you say it that way? Do atheists have spiritual lives? Of course. I mean, do if, you have if, a spiritual you know, life? Yes. I mean, if you if you define the spiritual life rather loosely as the very serious side of life. It's like the word soul, you know. Mm-hmm. Do, do atheists have souls? Um, uh, you know, in, in a strict religious sense, no. But in the loose sense, yes. And we, we all know what we mean. It, you know, if you meet somebody and you say, uh, you know, that person, he was quite interesting, but he seemed to lack soul. Or, uh, right. uh, you know, she, she doesn't seem to we have We have secular soul. ways of using this word. Right, mm-hmm. right. So we, and, but, it, but I think when we use it that way, we're on to something rather useful. It, it means... Um, it, it, it means an allusion to the deeper sides of a human being, um, the side that's going to confront death, the side that's there at moments of love, the side that is interested in questions of kind of ultimate meaning and direction, um, the serious stuff, you know, the, the side of us that, that kind of we confront at 3 a.m. when we're awoken and um, suddenly the world seems kind of a you know, challenging place to, to, to deal with in the way that sometimes we might not notice in, in the kind of busyness of the day. Um, I think that's the soul bit. And of course it exists in, in non-believers um, as much as in, in believers. Um, and similarly, you know, atheists have amazing moments under the stars as well. Um, when atheists look up and, and see the galaxies and contemplate the sheer nothingness, puniness of, uh, of humans in, in the cosmos, um, of course, you know, they also shudder and weep and, uh, and are awed and all these things that, that religious people might be. Um, it's just how we choose to interpret it. We don't leap to a supernatural conclusion. Right. Um, right. So when I look at the cosmos, I, I'm not forced to then make the next step, which is to say there must be something out there, um, etc. So, I, I, But look, there's so much more in common between believers and non-believers than we're sometimes encouraged to think. Yes. At the very last moment under the stars, we may differ about you know what's going on, but we can still have you know, a very nice time together for a long, long uh, part of this journey. And for many modern people, I think, um, people who you know, may not even may not be so firm as to call themselves atheists, but have rejected the religion of their childhood, of their family, have, have been non, not actively devout in any way. The rub often comes when they become parents, when they have children, and they start asking the question, uh, you know, do 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 I need to pass something on to my child, and what do I want to pass on to my child? And I mean, you have children, right? Two sons. Is that I right? do exactly. So how yes. are how are you navigating this? Um, well, they're very little. They're five and seven, oh, okay. and um, 
they, they, I mean, look, what, what I try and um, keep them very in touch with is that religion is important. Um, it's something to be respectful about. I tell them, frankly, that I don't believe, but that many of their friends and our friends do. Well, also, children um, ask spontaneous questions about God and, and these big ethical, theological questions of meaning and where we came from and, and yes. how we live and together. Course, I mean, and the charming thing about children is how they can hold very incompatible things in mind. So both my children do actually declare themselves non-believers. They say okay. they don't believe in God. But at the same time, they're absolutely convinced um, that their pet rabbit, who, who died last year, is still around and yes. they can talk to him. Yes. Um, and, and they don't see any incompatibility between the two. And... You know, one could say, well, that's, that's just children. But, of course, um, adults have this too. You know, we, yeah, we're both... We, we were, we're all, all children. Of, <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're all, we're all capable of these extraordinary sort of parallel patterns of thought. Yes. Um, and so, you know, your, your book is doing well. I mean, you are, you are a very uh, popular writer. You have a big following. But, but a book like this, Religion for Atheists, does not make a splash in the way a book called The God Delusion uh, makes a splash. Or, on the other end, you know, some very, very religious uh, books make a splash. Mm, I think you're on to something in terms of there being a kind of renaissance of searching for depth and meaning and thinking. But how do you explain this? You know, the fact that, you know, you're, you're touching the pulse of something and yet... Um, in some of these ways, we measure what's important, what is, in fact, hitting chords. There, there's a disconnect. How do you think about that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've had a, a rather extraordinary last three months promoting this book um, in the UK, in Australia, in the US. Um, it, it was an enormous phenomenon in the uh, UK and okay. in Australia, um, and indeed in Canada too. In the US, slightly less. Um, I think that's just, there's a lot of homegrown American things that, yeah. that happen, and I think the American media is quite, you know, focusing on itself. But look, you know, we're talking here on the radio. So it it, it was a big storm. Um, in the UK, the debate was, I mean, it was, it's a sign of where we've got to. The debate was, oh, look, here's an atheist who doesn't think religion is absolutely ridiculous. Right. Headline. I mean, <laughs> okay. that <laughs> okay. was right. an extraordinary thing. Yes. Um, which, is, which is, I mean, that's a sign of, of how peculiar. Um, and, of course, they, they, um, the media uh, aligned me with Richard Dawkins and, and tried to make sure we had some kind of a fight. Yes. Um, I, look, I, I, you know, I respect Dawkins as a scientist, but I do think that his criticism of religion is increasingly ill-tempered and, frankly, slightly fundamentalist um, and cranky. Which is a pity because he's a, a, an interesting man, can be, has been a very interesting man right. um, in many ways. But I, I, I think, um, look, I, I think we are in very divided times. And if you come out with a book like mine, you get shot at from both sides. The religious people say, hang on a minute, you know, he's impious. And, uh, and the non-believers, I mean, I've literally, I mean, I've had emails from... Um, from atheists saying things like, you've betrayed atheism. Mm -hmm. And I email back going, well, I'm not sure what that means. Um, right. And they say, well, you've been far too kind to religion. And I say, I didn't know that's what atheism was supposed to be about, being mean to religion. Um, <laughs> okay. you know, and, and you get this odd kind of uh, dialogue. So, yeah, divided times. Is mystery a part of your vocabulary? Um, yes. I mean, I call it being aware of the kind of puniness and fragility and, and kind of limits of our mind. So there's a way of saying mystery along the lines of 
um, there's something in the mystery that is divine. So there's something in the mm-hmm. in in the sort of ether that we don't know. There's something divine. I reject that. Um, there's something else though about saying. Um, much of the world and much of human experience is mysterious to us and we have to respect that that part of being a kind of thoughtful intelligent human being is recognizing just how little we understand and i've got very very um, much time for that point because i think that's fundamentally true and um and that's what at, at, at its best is a point that makes religious people very nicely modest because they will say, mm. you know, we mm-hmm. don't know. Yes. Only God knows. We're not here to judge. I mean, that, that's what makes fundamentalism so alien to my understanding of religion. Yes. Because fundamentalism is all about I know the truth and I'm going to tell you and I'm going to put you right. Yeah, it's those Whereas, humble religious people who don't exactly. throw themselves in front of microphones and cameras. Exactly. exactly. Um, but, you know, isn't... So I, I, you said something like this a minute ago that, that, that we've had much too narrow an understanding of what it means to be non-religious and that the words, I think, atheist and agnostic in some ways are boxes, just like a lot of religious labels have been boxes and people are breaking out of those. I mean, but to ask it uh, in a straightforward way, I mean, even isn't atheism uh, as a as a as a as an absolute conviction as as intellectually presumptuous and unprovable as faith as an absolute conviction i mean are you ever tempted to convert to agnosticism hmm. um i think the moment that uh, that i feel like it i i would in other words i'm not i'm not clenched to to this position at all mm-hmm. it's just that i i really do you know don't feel um that a a, a belief in, in you know in a divine being is, is something that I'm, you know, that, that rings bells with me. So, look, I'm, I'm happy to be in that, in, in the atheist uh, uh, box, but it's a much broader box than, mm-hmm. than we might have allowed for. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's an image of the fierce atheist who um, has faith in science and uh, ridicules uh, all um, you know, religious moments and religious impulses. And um, as I say, you know, I couldn't be further from that point of view. Look, it's ultimately, I think we do need to stretch categories. One of the people I discuss in my book is this rather crazy French sociologist called Auguste Comte, right. who in the 19th century analyzed modern society and argued that if we simply create a society that's based around financial accumulation and success on the one hand, and private life, family, relationships on the other, um, we're going to have an outbreak of mental illness. He diagnosed this, I think, rather provocatively and accurately in many ways, that that humans need to live for something more than just themselves. Um, and religion has been a way of channeling that. Now, Kant, uh, Kant's response to that was to create what he called a secular religion, an atheist's religion. Um, he called it the religion for humanity. And it was basically a stripped-down secular version of Catholicism right. with his girlfriend, Mathilde, in the position of the Virgin Mary. Kind of nuts in many ways, <laughs> but sort of interesting, interesting in all its looniness. I mean, he went really loony towards the end of his life and insisted that his... Um, his, uh, uh, anyone who, who, who followed him should call him the great leader, uh, which is you know, n- not, a, not a good move if you're appealing to non-believers. Um, so he was, he was very eccentric, but um, there's something there about um, stretching what it means to be an atheist, uh, recognizing that modern society hasn't got all the answers, being creative in relation to the needs of you know, the inner being, the spiritual being, the soul. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's food for thought there. Mm-hmm. So I think that this diagnosis you make of belief coupled from virtues as something that hasn't, hasn't served secular society, hasn't served non-religious people, 
it, it's also uh, um, it's also a, a a gap that's been there in in religious people. You know, I mean, I've watched uh, religion reenter politics in the United States in a new way in the last few decades. But it was very it was all about beliefs and opinions, and not necessarily about uh, how one treated enemies, for example, which would be a primary virtue of Christianity. Um, yes, you absolutely. Know? And so I, I think I think the the way you're thinking about this, this critique could also be very useful for religious people. Mm. Um, yes, of course, absolutely. Uh, I mean, really what you're suggesting is that many religious people, many nominally religious people, have slightly forgotten what good religion is supposed to be about. Mm. And in fact, many of the readers of my book who've been most um, sort of appreciative of it have said to me, oh, thank you for reminding me as a believer right. that there's, um, the, of, what it might, of what the best bits of our religions are. Because, of course, as you, as you rightly point out, there's so, many, there's so many ways to be religious and many of the most public ways of, of being religious that we're seeing at the moment are perhaps not optimal, particularly in their intolerance. And, of course, tolerance is right at the heart of um, uh, many religions. And tolerance is n- does not mean agreeing with people. Sometimes it's mistaken. Sometimes we, we, we believe that the tolerant person learns to agree or to see the other person's point of view. No. What tolerance really means is even though uh, you don't get what the other person's saying at all, even though you may not even like them, um, you make an effort to tolerate, in other words, to make space for them and you don't try and squash their opinions. Um, uh, and I think we've slightly forgotten that. We think that either you are tolerant, which means you're just going to um, you know, accept the other person's point of view, um, which is in many cases absolutely impossible, mm-hmm. or, um, or, or, or you're going to be intolerant, at which point you'll you know, chase them off the, off the field. Um, what we need to learn is how can we live together with people whose views we don't actually like very much? That's the far greater challenge without attempting to convert them or dismissing them um, and denying their you know, right to exist parallel to us. But, but see, and and yeah. I think that's, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's something the religions knew how to do. Well, and, and I think that tolerance, in fact, is a, is a secular word. It's a, <clears throat> it's a secular virtue that, that has its place and its purpose, but actually doesn't go far enough because what, what you're talking about, living together, again, you know, living together is something different from merely tolerating. Yes, I mean it's learning to to rub up against them on a on a daily basis. Um, it's really about the stranger, and you know, particularly Christianity has had a lot of time for the stranger. Yes, um, the stranger that you welcome into the home, even though um, uh, their, their beliefs may not be yours, and you show them because because they too, wherever they come from, they too were made by God. Now, even if you don't believe that they were made by God, there's some very important lesson in there. It's it's basically saying we have a shared humanity, even with people. Um, who don't seem to tick the boxes that we have put in place in terms of recognizing what a, a good human is. Do you ever think about what your father would think, the devout atheist, would, would, would think about this, this, this line of thinking, the school of life? He'd think his, his poor son had, had gone very soft in the head. <laughs> okay, um, really? And uh, yeah, yeah, he'd think it was all, it was all um, you know, yes, yes, you know, buck up, young man. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah, this is, this, is, this is all soft stuff. It's, mm-hmm. it's with the fairies, really. Um, so, you know, look, I, 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 you know, I respect him and uh, I respected him and, um, you know, that was his point of view. But, uh, you know, look, it's you know, every generation can, can work things out on their own. Mm-hmm. I do feel that uh, another religious and particularly Christian 
impulse that you are taking up as an atheist is that of being evangelical, right? which is about spreading the good news that you've discovered. That's interesting. That's interesting. <laughs> um, well, it, you know, of course, what, what Christianity, all religions to some extent uh, are very interested in is, is rhetoric, convincing people through oratory, mm-hmm. through speaking, through, through you know, trying to, to, to discuss things. Um, and um, we slightly lost that. I mean, certainly the field that I come from intellectually, philosophy, um, now mumbles its truths to the world and um, therefore doesn't really have an audience. Um, and even though I often don't agree with the content of what um, the sermonizing tradition is saying in religions, um, the fact that they're out there speaking well, um, mobilizing people, of course, this is this is a fascinating uh, project. Um, I, I do believe in trying to reach people, reach an audience. Um, one of the ways in which I try to do this is to try, I'm probably not doing a very good job of it today, but try and be very clear, uh, lay my ideas out sort of succinctly. Um, and well, It's not and just I'm your ideas, or- though. It's your passion, too. It's- yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think if you, you know, if you believe in stuff, you, you want to tell people about it. But mm-hmm. um, I hope, you know, I hope I remain open to other people and other ideas. And I think that's that's you know, it should always be a two way process. You know, by all means, uh, get out there and spread your news. But you know, be be aware that others might have other interesting news, and and you know, be open to that. Um, I just want to say uh, you, you're in an interesting position to to be having this message to be to be carrying these ideas as someone who's british where you have a state church which everyone belongs to but few actively you know, believe in these days um i remember when i was living in the uk a couple of years ago hearing a.n wilson say i don't believe in god but i believe in the church which yes. is a very strange statement to anyone out there yes, <laughs> to an american absolutely. Um, and yet, and there are all kinds of reasons that in Britain and, and Western Northern Europe, the church discredited itself. I mean, there's an incredible history there. And yet, I think it's, it's possible to argue that some of the virtues of religion, of care for the stranger and the poor, got taken up in laws and in social norms um, even as the culture became more secular. Yes, I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating that legally in Britain, um, government, the state and religion are totally joined. Yes. Literally totally joined. Whereas legally, constitutionally in the United States, uh, religion and the state are totally separate. Yes. And yet on the ground, day to day, the situation is the reverse. Day to day, no UK politician ever ever mentions religion Mm -hmm. Um, or if they do they get into serious trouble Uh, and uh, there's no influence of religion on the state and and it's rather the opposite in the US where politicians routinely invoke God um, and and show their religious credentials. Well because people would say Um, that paradoxically separation of church and state um, allowed religion to continue to flourish in people's lives in a way that state church didn't. Yes but but also um, started to bleed into the state again, yes. um, in in you know in, in really confusing ways. I mean, um, it, it's it's true that the UK is incredibly secular. I mean, it's much more secular than than the US. Um, I think I partly wrote this book because the Church of England, the dominant Christian denomination, is so on its knees um, 
it, they're, you know, they're very gentle souls who uh, generally will have anyone who believes anything. I mean, it, church mm-hmm. attendance is so low. Mm-hmm. Um, they've lost so many. They're sort of figures of fun. You know, this is the this is this is Monty Python or the Life of Brian country, <laughs> right. um, where where religion really is a, 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 a kind of comedic thing um, in a way that might be hard for Americans to to understand. But you also rightly point out that. Um, that many religious attitudes are kind of embedded in day-to-day life and in structures like the National Health Service, yes. which is basically a Christian institution. No one ever mentions it, yeah. but the you know the, the national provision of healthcare has deeply, deeply religious roots, mm-hmm. um, and uh, in, in ways that the secular world kind of doesn't dare mention. But of course, it does. Right. Right. And um, I don't know. I mean, if I want, want to draw to a close, but I just, you know, as you as you create this school of life, and you I mean you you are so that's that's the landscape you are in which you are still saying um, these virtues do need to mean something in lives, and and people living today want these things to be part of their lives, and we need, but we need structures and rituals, and and we need to help each other in that, and and take a cue from. What relig- how religion has known to do that. That's right. I think too often um, when we decide or when we feel, you know, I don't believe, that can often mean a complete withdrawal from um, participation in, interest in, even knowledge of religion. The fact that we don't believe in a divine creature um, means that we completely withdraw from all aspects of religiosity. I think this is a tremendous mistake and impoverishes us intellectually, if you like, spiritually, practically, um, because there's so much there that we can be inspired by, guided by. We understand ourselves better, even as atheists, by understanding what religious people have felt a need to address in in their lives. Um, the secular world has still got many, many needs. We're still, we sometimes think we've invented everything. We haven't. Um, there's as much invention to do in um, the kind of soul space as there is in the technological space. Mm. And we need to be creative. And one of the ways in which we're going to be creative is by being fully aware of the constant creativity that religions have shown in addressing these very strange, um, slightly hard-to-discuss needs that we might call the needs of the soul, but that are there. And they greet us at 3 a.m. or in relationships when we hit difficulties or uh, when we're facing mortality or just when we're out and about under the stars. Um, We feel these needs and... Um, we need to address them. We need to find a structure for them. And that's what Religion for Atheists, my, my book, is was grappling with. Yeah, and soul space, I, what I also see you doing is carving out what has been traditionally religiously called sacred space, sacred space in um, in secular culture. Uh, and you, you, you talk about that even literally in terms of architecture as well as these spaces of gathering and reflection. That, that's right. That's right. There's, you know, the things that have been demarcated by that term sacred space are, again, belong to everybody, not just believers. Um, they, they're the, you know, the, the common richness of, of all of us. And, um, you know, even, even religious buildings, you know, the wonders of religious architecture, how come we've forgotten all of that? Right. How come modern architects don't know that good architecture is it's part of being a good human being. Well, um, and the, the, and the impulse that, that we are formed by the spaces we're in, right? That's there. right. That's right. I mean, you know, modern, um, uh, the modern sort of capitalist view is that property development is just a part, part of sort of making money, whereas for uh, religions, property, space is part of mental health. Mm-hmm. If you get the space wrong, 
you'll get people who are sick. You know, you, mm. you, you, in order to be good, you need to be in a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what religions believe. That's why they've built many beautiful places. Mm-hmm. And similarly, evil, one, one route through which evil reaches us is through ugliness um, and uh, fascinating, provocative kind of idea you know, imagine putting that to the average property developer. No. So, again, it's just yet another example of how religions continuously provoke and challenge routine assumptions of, of the modern world. Mm-hmm. Tell me what uh, I would experience physically, just visually, if I walked into the School of Life. Um, we're in the street. Uh, we're in a very ordinary shopping street in the centre of London. We've got a kebab shop on one side and a hairdresser on the other. And right in the middle, in a, in a shop space, you've got this thing called the School of Life. So you drop in and uh, uh, on the menu, as it were, on the wall, um, rather than you know products or uh, um, food items or whatever, you have instruction in all sorts of areas. You have all the key words, the things that we're involved in, like friendship, community, um, at work, the workplace, mortality, illness. Um, these things are a part of the curriculum. And you can sign up. There's a very helpful person at a desk. They'll chat to you about what you might want to, to come in and, and participate in. Um, there's uh, uh, a little bit of uh, coffee, and um, you, can, you can sit down and um, have a chat with anybody who happens to be there. It's friendly. The atmosphere mm-hmm. is, is friendly. And then every evening you can go downstairs and um, take part in a, in, a, in a kind of class. Every month there's a big secular sermon. We organise trips. Uh, there's we music. Books. There's music. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you can belong online a little bit. Um, we, we're, we're ramping that up. So you can, you can follow what's going on in this little London HQ from, from abroad at, at the schooloflife.com. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a community. It's an attempt to say there are many needs which religion served. Um, we're not trying to rival religion. We're not trying to start a new religion here. We're just, we're just running things with an awareness that religion knew about certain kind of lonely, slightly lost sides of the human nature, which oddly, in our otherwise very complex and richly stocked capitalist consumer society we've kind of abandoned um right. you can get you know sixty thousand varieties of ice cream and uh, you know many different kinds of uh, music etc but when it comes to those other things like friendship community guidance you know the, the offering becomes a lot thinner quite quickly so we're, we're in that space so what would your dream be your vision of how that might evolve that project look i mean i think what i really care about and have cared across my career as a, as a writer is getting what you might broadly, and I don't mean this pretentiously, but let's use it that word anyway, wisdom higher up on the agenda, Um, the art of living, um, how to cope with life in its, um, you know, all its complexities. Um, I want to get that more on the agenda. Um, I do that as a writer. And then in the last few years, I've realized that writers can do other stuff other than write books Mm -hmm. because, you know, that's just only one way of communicating. Why not start this organization or other things? So that's really what what drives me. Uh, I'm interested in the kind of promotion of, of wisdom. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a kind of life's mission. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you. Del- you're thank delightful you. to read and wonderful to speak to as well. I've got a question from behind the glass from a producer. Yes. I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I listen. Yeah. I can't hear you. Okay. I still can't hear you. That knob has been funny today. <laughs> okay, now I hear you. Okay, no, no, go on. No, I'm not hearing you, Trent. I heard... Oh, oh, no. 
Sorry, we're having technical difficulties. No, no problem, no problem. Another feature of modern life. (laughs) Thank you Um, so much for making the time to do this. And we will uh, uh, let you know when this is airing. And I look forward to turning it into an hour of radio. Fantastic. Okay, thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Was your recording okay at your end? Excellent. Well, we've, we have a backup here if there's any problems. Cheers. All the best.